It's now early June 1997. It's been less than a month since Laurent Désiré Kabila's alliance forces took the capital Kinshasa and Zaire became the Democratic Republic of Congo. The whole country is now under the former rebel leader's control and many refugees are fleeing over the border into the Republic of Congo on the DRC's western border to escape forced repatriation and potentially death at the hands of Kabila's troops. Majority of the refugees were, of course, very scared of Kagame and, and his forces and seen the state. Needless to say, I would not even think that half of them could have walked back to Rwanda. It would have been absolutely impossible. They were way too dehydrated, malnourished uh, and too weak. No, impossible. In the Brazzaville camps in the Republic of Congo, MSF France's communications officer and a doctor seconded from Médecins du Monde are collecting eyewitness accounts from the newly arrived refugees. The stories of their long and difficult journeys across the DRC are harrowing. This 28-year-old male student tells how he got married in a refugee camp after first fleeing Rwanda, but was forced to go on the run again after the camp was attacked in September 1996. Then came the shells and machine gun fire. We had a little corn, some clothes and $12. We walked into the forest, through the mud, without sleeping. Then we kept to a road with 30,000 others. We were held hostage by Zairean soldiers dressed in civilian clothes. About 10 people who resisted the pillaging were killed. We lived on plants. Five to 6,000 people were massacred at Shambusha. I found my father, two sisters and a brother at Tingi Tingi. Then we moved on. One night we stopped at Lubutu Bridge. When the bridge opened, some people fell in the water and drowned. I lost the bundle I was carrying on my head. I put my wife on my back and crossed the river. We kept walking. People died of sickness and hunger. On the 12th of June, the violence escalates in Congo-Brazzaville and the MSF France team is evacuated. The French send the Belgian and Dutch sections a first draft of a report with the witness testimonies on the massacres. It finds that the villagers in DRC were often forced by the Alliance to attack the refugees. There is someone missing in every family, it says. Once again, an MSF team witnesses violence and there are disagreements between the sections over the gathering and publication of the refugees' eyewitness accounts. Their publication is put on hold. In this, the final episode in the series, we'll look at how MSF teams try to review their collective role in the public arena and strive to work together again. We'll examine the longer-term view MSF takes as they reassess the main dilemmas the organisation has faced during the past two years in the Great Lakes, during a crisis that has resulted in the fall of two governments, the renaming of a country, the displacement of millions of people, and the deaths of thousands. Those in the movement ask, should MSF publicly extrapolate from the condition of refugees and their potential health needs the fate of people whom it has no access to? Is it wise to predict the worst? Should MSF pull out of a crisis when humanitarian organisations are being used to bring refugees out of hiding and potentially lead to their deaths? 
Or should MSF continue and condemn in the hope of preventing massacres, even if this risks endangering teams and other operations in the region? Lastly, should MSF take part in the forced repatriation of refugees to Rwanda, or call for them to stay in refugee camps outside the country, when neither option guarantees the safety of the people they're trying to protect? This is Speaking Out, the hunting and killing of Rwandan refugees in Zaire, a podcast by MSF. I'm Nick Owen. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop Et... the bombing of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. Not the scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Episode 8, Learning from Retrospective Reports. For the MSF sections involved in the crisis in the Great Lakes, it's been a bruising start to 1997. The decision to speak out about MSF being used as humanitarian bait, evidence of mass graves, human rights abuses and the dilemma of supporting refugees' repatriation to Rwanda has eroded trust between the MSF sections. MSF France is accused of leaking reports to the international media, while MSF Holland is accused of sitting on evidence of MSF teams being used as bait to lure refugees out of the forests. It's been a long and sometimes dangerous path to speaking out publicly. In June 1997, after discussions with the MSF France team, the Belgian section in Kinshasa wants MSF to stop gathering eyewitness statements in the Great Lakes and subcontract it to what they call reliable people. The MSF Belgian programme manager continues to refuse MSF France's requests for information about the plight of the refugees in the Mbandaka area in Western DRC, where massacres are still occurring, citing the broken trust with MSF in Paris after what they see as several breaches of the rules. There's continued debate between the various sections about where and when these statements should be made public. The release of this latest eyewitness report is rapidly turning into another shibunda. Tensions are running high between the different sections and trust is being further eroded. At a board meeting on the 13th of June, MSF France president suggests organising a workshop with the different MSF sections to try and come up with a solution to the issue of gathering eyewitness statements and how the process is approached. Now, vital questions should not be ignored. Does gathering witness statements endanger the missions? Does it help the political process? Does it endanger populations? Its integration into complex crises like the Great Lakes presents obvious difficulties, but if we are to come to grips with the problematic, it might be better to deconstruct the case rather than produce theoretical statements or expositions, to work on the material so we all learn the same lessons from it and forge a common culture. After much discussion between the sections, the presidents and general directors of the five operational sections decide to release the report confidentially to three human rights organisations, on condition that MSF is not named as the source. Meanwhile, the Washington Post reports on the massacre of refugees by Alliance rebels a couple of months earlier in Kasisi, a village on the railway line in eastern DRC. This hamlet of straw-thatch mud huts in the heart of Congo's vast rainforest harbours a dark secret. In mid-April, 
urged on by military officers loyal to rebel leader Laurent Kabila. Its villagers tore through a camp of mostly Rwandan Hutu refugees, hacking and spearing groups of men, women and children. Armed men among the Hutus fought them off, but a day later, Kabila's rebel forces stepped in and, according to survivors and local residents, ravaged the refugee community of 55,000 for seven hours, firing wildly into the encampment in a grove of palm trees straddling a rutted jungle road. Again, local villagers joined in the fray, wielding spears and machetes against the refugees. The local residents and refugee survivors said hundreds died. Many of them were buried in a mass grave 500 yards up a dirt path that is now guarded by Kabila's troops. More revelations are coming out all the time. On the 19th of June, the Washington Post reports. Congo's new president, Laurent Kabila, has told local officials here to do as little as possible to aid a UN investigation into alleged refugee massacres by his troops, Western and Congolese sources said. The sources said Kabila and his new government are under intense pressure from Rwandan and Ugandan security officials to stymie the UN probe. Rwandan and Ugandan security forces formed an important part of Kabila's armed uprising against President Mobutu Sese Seko, who fled into exile May the 16th. In exchange for help in toppling Mobutu, Kabila was forced to give those units a free hand in gunning down thousands of Hutu refugees, who had been living in what was then Zaire since 1994, the sources said. Laurent Desiré Kabila is questioned on DRC TV about the Washington Post accusations and publicly denies the massacres. These are lies, he says. At the start of July 1997, UNHCR estimates that there are still 230,000 refugees unaccounted for in the Great Lakes. The fate of those that can be counted is dire. A quarter of the returnees who needed hospital treatment on returning to Rwanda die within 48 hours of landing in the country. UNHCR say they can't protect those who return to their home regions. At a press conference on the 11th of July, MSF Belgium denounces the plight of the refugees who've been forcibly repatriated to Rwanda. The accompanying press release reads, Since the beginning of the refugee repatriations to Rwanda more than two months ago, no alternative has been offered to those who refuse to return. Their only choices are either to stay in Congo and hide in the forests, or be taken to Rwanda, where there is a continuing climate of insecurity. Due to this insecurity, it is currently impossible to monitor the nutritional and medical situation of the refugees once they have returned to their home communes. The MSF field coordinator, back from Kisangani, says... I'm shocked by the total absence of choice given to the refugees. It is a humanitarian trap. The refugees are not registered, not protected, and before being put onto the plane to Rwanda, they receive no clear information on the insecure situation there. On top of that, the innocent have never been separated from the criminals, but have been used continuously as a human shield for more than three years. Nothing is being done that might encourage them to feel more optimistic about their future. Belgian newspaper Le Soir picks up the story and other MSF sections also take the message to the media. On the 12th of July 1997, 
The UN Human Rights Commission releases its preliminary report on the massacre of refugees in eastern Zaire. According to its authors, the killings committed can be described as crimes against humanity. They advise their successors to investigate the probable planning and setting in motion of genocide. But their successor's mission to the DRC is already being hampered by the new Congolese government. Just the week before, Kabila forced the UN to remove the special rapporteur mandated by the Human Rights Commission, Roberto Garreton, from the inquiry. They've only been in the country for three weeks and since their arrival have been obstructed at every turn. Kabila's government is now demanding that the UN inquiry also looks into Mobutu's crimes during his time as president of Zaire. Over the next few months, MSF sections meet regularly to establish new ways to work together. In July, they all get together in Brussels to assess the organisation's activity in Central Africa. No decisions are made. Instead, the focus is on identification and inventory. The meeting seems to be a success and the teams start collaborating again. Finally, in mid-July, the eyewitness statements are published in the French newspaper Le Monde. MSF had initially cancelled their publication after disagreements between sections. Although MSF was involved in collecting them, they're attributed to Médecins du Monde. These statements are also sent to the United Nations Commission of Inquiry, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International. In August, the UN Commission of Inquiry finally begins its investigation into the violence in Eastern DRC. The commission is going right back to March 1993, rather than the launch of the Alliance Offensive in autumn 1996. But it's been given no guarantees about the investigators' freedom of movement or the confidentiality of any eyewitness testimonies gathered. In fact, the UN investigators have been in the country for nearly two months already and have been hampered from travelling and speaking to witnesses by Kabila's new Congolese regime. By the 4th of September, the UN are again denouncing the persistent obstructions placed in the path of its investigative team. At MSF, they're making a bit more progress on the diplomatic front. Dramatic events at the Kisangani camp bring the various sections together to publicly condemn the situation in a press release. More than 600 Rwandan and Burundian refugees were expelled from the Kisangani camp yesterday. They were forced onto several aircraft and flown to Kigali. These people were supposed to be under the protection of the United Nations High Commission for Refugees. Humanitarian organisations were powerless to prevent the forced repatriation of refugees who had clearly indicated their unwillingness to return to Rwanda or Burundi. As UNHCR was unable to fulfil its mandate, these people had no protection whatsoever. MSF supports UNHCR's formal condemnation of yesterday's events. There is a strong possibility that yesterday's events which could have been predicted given the statements made by local authorities, will be repeated in other localities where refugees are to be found, particularly as the UN Commission of Inquiry is about to begin its work. The forced repatriation of refugees to Rwanda has been one of the key issues the sections fell out over in the spring. Another is their varying approaches to the philosophy of speaking out. On the 12th of September, the boards of MSF Belgium and France meet to discuss their differences. The minutes of this meeting, written by MSF Belgium, read MSF France is inclined to give it greater priority for the sake of visibility to the general public. 
MSF Belgium tends to focus on delivering aid directly to the victims and maintaining a presence in order to exploit any change in the situation. On the other hand, MSF France will be particularly careful to avoid an inadmissible situation. Moreover, MSF Belgium places great emphasis on long-term preventative measures. That is why, unlike other sections, we were active and had a strong presence in the Congo ten years before the crisis. Then in October, the general directors and operations directors from the MSF sections working in the region meet to discuss the Congolese government's expulsion of UNHCR's mission in Goma. The discussion centres around whether to take a public position on the matter. In the end, they delay speaking out and instead publish a report that was commissioned by the French section back in the summer. At the time, some sections had disputed this document's reliability, but now it's ready to go. The report is a retrospective mortality survey by a wing of MSF called Epicentre. MSF France commissioned the researchers to interview refugees at one of the camps just over the border in the Republic of Congo to find out what they'd been through in the nine months since leaving the eastern Kivu provinces around 1,500 kilometres away. The survey's findings are published in an article in the British scientific journal The Lancet. From our survey, only a low proportion of Rwandan refugees who fled Kivu camps in Zaire have reached the Congo. Most of them disappeared during the numerous attacks conducted against them. Possible causes of disappearance may have included repatriation or killing. Thus, mortality rates and proportion of deaths due to killing were probably underestimated, as only observed deaths were recorded as such. Nonetheless, they were extremely high. The next month, the full retrospective mortality survey is finally made public when MSF's Marcel Van Soest appears before the US House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee. As we stand before the US government once again, telling you what we've seen, we cannot deny our frustration that our past efforts in this regard have been made without response. In fact, humanitarian agencies are often asked to put ourselves on the line, not only in the field, but at home to tell governments about massacres, health catastrophes and the general state of threatened populations. Respectfully, we ask you for an official and systematic way to address conflict together so that our hard-won information does not fall on deaf ears. As long as politicians do not take the first line of responsibility for establishing the truth, both at-risk populations and humanitarian actors remain endangered. Lack of impunity has a price, whether paid in political terms or human life. But the pursuit of truth is not the sole province of humanitarian agencies. Given the choice, we would prefer to be in the field saving lives and providing medical care to people rather than compiling reports and speaking about them, even before such an esteemed audience. We look forward to your leadership in the region, which we are sure will save lives in the future. In their presentation, MSF says the US administration maintains de facto foreign diplomatic leadership in the region. Their involvement in the crisis was highlighted over the summer in a report by the American human rights organisation Physicians for Human Rights, or PHR. They accuse the US Army of giving technical assistance to the Rwandan Patriotic Army, which then supported Kabila's alliance in the DRC. The New York Times reports that the PHR's investigators told another House of Representatives hearing that Rwandan troops had received intensive training by US forces in counterinsurgency. 
But State Department officials said the training was limited to teaching military justice, the role of the army in a democracy, and an appreciation of human rights, while another denied US engagement in counterinsurgency training. Meanwhile, French paper Liberation reports, The Dutch doctor, Marcel van Zorst, conveyed the impression that the investigation of these large-scale human rights violations was an embarrassment for the Clinton administration. He also accused the American ambassador to Rwanda of deliberate disinformation for having denied last autumn that at least 300,000 Hutu refugees had fled to the West when the camps were attacked. MSF Belgium General Director Dr Eric Gomar. Well, I think the the American involvement uh, in the operation was very uh, well hidden. There was no American flags to be seen anywhere. But uh, I remember going to the airport, uh, seeing C-130 aircraft. Uh, I spoke to some of the pilots, pretending that uh, I was looking for information. They had a very strong American accent, but they were not in a military uniform. And needless to say, in that time, Kabila's force didn't have any uh, C-130 aircraft. So they definitely uh, supported the advance of the AFDL towards uh, Kinshasa, and uh, they were just helping to transport the troops uh, there, but helping clearly uh, the Kabila side. But I didn't see them participating in any repatriation flight. Uh, Definitely there was no statement, and they, they tried to keep it as discreet as possible. Seven months later, in April 1998, there's yet another blow to the UN investigations team in Eastern DRC. The New York Times reports. Secretary General Kofi Annan has decided to pull a team of United Nations human rights investigators out of Congo after months of harassment and obstruction of their work, officials here said today. The team of 26 foreign experts, and at least as many Congolese, has been looking into reports that tens of thousands of Rwandan refugees were massacred in 1996 and 1997 by troops loyal to Laurent Kabila, now president of Congo, the former Zaire. The investigation was suspended last week after Congo officials detained one investigator and photocopied his documents. The team faced its biggest problems trying to excavate a mass gravesite in Mbandaka, north of Kinshasa, last December, and again in March this year. Organised crowds turned the investigators back with threatening demonstrations, and forensic evidence could not be collected. Despite not being able to complete their mission, the team send a final report to the UN Security Council and make it public a couple of months later. It describes the killings perpetrated by the Alliance and its allies as crimes against humanity. Meanwhile, in Rwanda, members of the regime are talking to the media. Speaking to a British foreign affairs journalist, the Vice President and Defence Minister of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, admits to having planned and led an information war in Eastern DRC. We use communication and information warfare better than anyone. We have found a new way of doing this, he says. In another interview, a Rwandan official is quoted as saying that NGO volunteers were intelligence gatherers and that MSF spied for the French government. But the journalist who wrote the article adds that Rwandan officials don't make the same accusations in private. At MSF France, 
President Dr. Philippe Bibesson regrets how MSF sometimes compromised its impartiality too much during these years in Eastern DRC. On a trop composé avec l'impartialité. Too much has been made of impartiality. We were always where people wanted us to be for a very specific reason, to control populations, to fix populations. We have a kind of cult of access. We are humanitarians. We must have access. But in the Great Lakes, everything was ultimately about manipulation and displacement of populations, regrouping, triage, separation of populations and so on. We did what we were told to do. I believe that MSF Belgium's persistence in wanting to stay in Rwanda to support the returnees was too obvious and very easy to manipulate for the Rwandan authorities. They knew that MSF had a strong interest in staying for operational reasons, for institutional reasons, for sentimental reasons. They knew that we would not leave, that they could make us swallow all the bullshit, that they could make us wait as long as it took, block us for as long as they liked. Ultimately, we were ready to swallow anything at that time. On the 13th of July 1998, the UN Security Council condemns the atrocities committed in the DRC and calls on the DRC and the Rwandan governments to investigate and punish the guilty. It requests the cooperation of all member states. During the following years, there are further investigations on crimes committed in the area. In October 2010, the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights publishes a mapping report on the most serious violations of human rights committed in the DRC over the decade from March 1993. Among many others, the investigators consulted 14 MSF reports from the time, including the controversial Forced Flight report. MSF France issues a press release restating their position and role in speaking out in Eastern DRC at the time. The release highlights that beyond denouncing the violence and non-discriminate attacks on the refugee and civilian populations, MSF reports denounce the criminal use of humanitarian activities. It wasn't put out by most of the other sections who questioned the relevance of reminding people that MSF had received no support at the time. Humanitarian aid was used by armed factions to locate, group together and massacre civilian and refugee populations. In these exceptional circumstances, to remain silent would have been synonymous with complicity. It is the humanitarian actor's direct responsibility to raise a public alert. At the time, and for years later, the word of those like MSF who alerted the international community on these massacres, was doubted. Whatever the impact of this report, it is crucial to analyse the reasons for this denial and the absence of support to aid organisations who were facing these events. War continues in the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo with ceaseless violence against the population. MSF's essential role is to gain access to victims by negotiating with the armed factions present. In order to do this, the organisation cannot be perceived as a witness for the prosecution in legal proceedings, as this would endanger its actions and team members. MSF will, therefore, continue to raise immediate alerts in serious situations, but refuses involvement in present or future judicial actions. 
This MSF podcast is based on an original MSF case study called The Hunting and Killing of Rwandan Refugees in Zaire, Congo, 1996-1997. It's written by Laurence Binet and is part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Laurence Binet, Martin Saulnier, and Rebecca Golden-Timsar. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Danielle Stagg and Matthew Wade. Additional voiceovers and readings are by Michael Barrett, Clive Hayward, Kathy Hewison, Gregory Keane, Andrea Rangecroft, Alex Vincent, and Joanne Wong. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Jose Antonio Bastos, Dr. Philippe Bibasson, Samantha Bolton, Francoise Boucher-Saulnier, Dr. Jean-Hervé Bradol, Brigitte Doppler, Dr. Eric Gomar, Anne Guibert, Rachel Kittle-Monroe, Leslie Lefko, Dr. Jacques Demiliano. Thanks for listening to this series. To read the full study and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org/speakingout. speaking out.